podcast one production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. Waleed Ali is my guest today. He's a quite serious cat. Most people see him as the (laughs) presenter of The Project, which has been his day job for now how many years? Uh, Five. Five years. But he's also a lawyer, uh, a father, a husband, a musician, an academic, a writer, an author mm. uh, of serious works um, <laughs> and columns. And uh, he's not afraid, interestingly, to be a prominent Muslim at a time when the public relations for Islam has not been stunning and a lot of people have probably gone to ground in terms of their Islamic faith in the Western world, at least. Uh, but he's not afraid to stand up and be counted. Uh, He's a player of complicated board games, which we'll talk about, and um, he's my guest today. So, Waleed, thank you for joining us. It's really good to be here. Good. I'm flattered at the invitation, and I was a little worried that it took a while, because I know you interviewed my colleague, Peter Hellier, I think as your, was was he your first? He was our first, yeah. And I looked at that, and I thought, well, what's wrong with me? (laughs) What's happened to me? But, you know, (laughs) since I said that you were coming on, Mm. Carrie Bickmore's now said, but how come you've had Waleed and ah, Pete and you haven't had me? I see. She said, now I know you don't really like me. And I said, so that's rubbish. I do. I can't have the whole cast of Buddy Project. Why not? <laughs> Besides, people... you haven't. You've still got Lisa. <laughs> oh, exactly. I love yeah. Lisa Wilkinson too, of course. But I can't do everybody from the project. People think I'm, you know, filled with bias. I've had a couple of pollies, but we haven't had a lot of pollies. No, but you've had political people. We've had Richard Miles, Scott Morrison, and Malcolm Turnbull. So, Richard Miles was very funny, actually. So he's your co-host. You just basically interview co-hosts. That's what you do. <laughs> Which makes it easy. <laughs> Seems to be. I guess that's right, because I've seen them in action. Do you enjoy doing the project? I do, actually. It's one of the few media things that I'm doing. So yeah, I've got right. a column in the Tizer once a week. Yep. Because I like the Tizer. It's my hometown. Look after your local constituents. I do, and I need to have a voice. Why do you need to have a voice? Because I've had a voice since I was in about year five when I started <laughs> debating. <laughs> Why don't you just go back to doing debates and in when I was um, <laughs> when I was <laughs> contemplating leaving politics, I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to go cold turkey because I've always, you know, had a voice. And, of course, there's a secret reason that I have a column for the Tizer. Mm. What's that? If any of my former colleagues decide to be mean to me about something, I'll just fix them up in the column. But you know that if it got <laughs> to that I'm, point. Not that I'm vindictive. What a, what a noble reason that is. Um, <laughs> I'm a noble reason. What, what I, the, you know, I'm just telling the truth. No, no, I, I appreciate that. But you realise that if it came to it, you could just write an article as and when you require. Yeah, but I haven't done that. I mean, I haven't given any of my former colleagues a flick. No, no, I get that. But if you felt the need, you wouldn't need to have a column But that there. would be deliberate. I mean, I deliberately ring up an uh, editor and say, I'd like to write a column because I want to get stuck into somebody who's been mean to me. And it's they would that, say, sure. That's got no credibility. <laughs> Whereas just kind of, you know, 
mm. quietly falling it away and then coming along <laughs> later and yeah, right. giving somebody a yeah, bit that's of a much flick. nicer. It's much yeah, nicer. Uh, yeah, I see. See, that. I'm the secret assassin. Yeah, it's not so secret. Not now. No, no, no. <laughs> not that it's out on the podcast on Pine Time. You know, I think when um, <laughs> I love how much you committed to saying that Pine Time. Yeah, you I love really it. hit it. It was actually not my suggestion, Pine Time. Whose was it? Uh, Amanda, who used to be on the radio in uh, Blair, Amanda Blair, oh, right. she had a segment called Pine Time and she had sung the intro to it to the tune of Downtown. <laughs> and she, <laughs> <That's great. laughs> she changed Downtown to Pine Time. Do you know, Pete did a segment called Pine Time, except I think it was called Pine Wine Time. <laughs> Because, oh, really? Yeah. And when I say segment, I think it happened once. Oh. And I think it was after you'd had a very long, quite boozy dinner with Clive Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Who you would have been night. wooing at the time. I was wooing. control of the crossbench. Matthias Corman and I were wooing him. Yes. And somebody in the press pack saw us in the, um, it was a China plate. Yes, it was. And, uh. When we looked out the window, there were like sort of 30 journalists, cameramen and sound people outside the restaurant. And I said, well, I'm not going out the bloody back door. I've got no reason to sort of, you know, be embarrassed about having dinner with Clive. I love billionaires. <laughs> I've never met a billionaire I didn't like or find very attractive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, or. They're in the alternative. <laughs> that wasn't an end. It was an or. Or, that's okay. right. Um and Clive so, said, well, we'll have to have another bottle of wine to give them a proper show. So we did. You, it seemed that you had. And then when we came out, <laughs> um, those two disappeared like the Scarlet Pimpernel. They were gone. Oh, uh, they just got you drunk. And I was just, uh, well, I wasn't drunk. I've never been drunk. And then I kind of sort of wandered off to the press pack and uh, I was asked a question by Matt Moran. Remember Matt Moran? Yeah. And I said, well, he was wearing a pair of shorts. Okay. And I said, <laughs> and I said Matt, it, it can't come out, you know, asking questions like some sort of professional journalist wearing you know, gym gear. I'm not interested. And that made everybody kind of sort of be a bit distracted momentarily <laughs> while I leapt into the com car, <laughs> leapt well, in and drove away. It was, it was enough for Pete to run pine wine time. Oh, no, so people do, th so I had to dispel the myth that Pete didn't like me. We had a rollicking um, podcast, actually. So the first time, <laughs> that's a little distraction, the first time we met was down a camera and I, oh, we're I, starting the interview now. Sorry. I got the sense that you didn't um, approve of me. Why did you get that I sense? I don't know. Oh. I think you can be a bit disapproving when you think the person you're talking to is hiding their true beliefs about something. When it's an accountability interview, yes. Mm. So I don't mind if people want to be guarded about things, but there's no reason for them or for us as the public to care that they're guarded about something that might make them a boring interview, mm -hmm. but I don't necessarily judge them as a person or, you know, judge their performance or anything like that. If they're, I don't know, a filmmaker or something like that. But you have a habit, which you probably don't realize yeah. that when we have our pre show conversations yeah. and I talk openly about something, yeah. <laughs> you have this really unfortunate habit of asking me about it on the panel. No, I don't. No, no, you don't reveal what I said. But then when I don't say the same thing. I get disappointed. You look disapprovingly you, at me. Are you? Are you <laughs> hang on. Guilty. Are you just guilty. Are you just admitting to the world that you hide things from sometimes, the, the public? Well, sometimes I have, you know, I might be more open in the privacy of 
the yeah, conversation. The conversation. Then when I'm on television. Well, I apologise for that. You, I, no, I don't, you don't have to apologise. I don't mean to do that. You don't have to pause because then you pause and look at me. And I think, Waleed, don't <laughs> do that to me. <laughs> All right. All right. I will, I will try I think henceforth Waleed not to. is being disapproving. And I, but I think you're probably right to do that because I think to myself, well, perhaps I shouldn't, you know, be quite so open in the conversation and then guard it on the, sh- on the panel because... That's not the right thing to do. Which so is while the, it's right to be disciplined. Which is the mistake, the being open beforehand or the being guarded on air? Being guarded on air. You think you should be more expansive? Yeah, but that's because I'm still, I'm only six or eight months out of politics and I spent 26 years being guarded. Oh, so you're saying the disapproving stuff has happened since you retired? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, that I don't apologise for. No. I think that's fair game. You know, a little bit. Yeah. 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 I think I think <laughs> that you're in a position now to... Because I, I've had, um, I wouldn't say we've had a lot of extensive conversations about politics or about the world or whatever, but we've had a few. We have. That unfortunately are uh, in the confines of the time that we have when we're trying to put this show together are always rudely interrupted by work. That's true. But I would say that you actually have quite a lot to contribute, but you refuse to contribute it. Oh. Because I'm... Because you, we, cause you get guarded in those, in those moments. Well, I think probably people still, if I say something dramatic, it's likely to get reported, isn't it? Now, because I'm still sort of recently in the leadership group and on the Yeah, but I suppose it's untested, isn't it? It is untested. Maybe you should test it out. <laughs> no, see, so you now you're just Take trying it for to, a spin and You're trying to lure me into danger. I don't mean, <laughs> I, I don't mean you any harm. So I don't... That sounds really bad. Yeah, but I, I want to be clear. Now I know to be, to be careful. No, no, I don't want to, I want to be clear about this. My, uh, my desire is not to see you in a situation that's uncomfortable or whatever. My desire is simply for you to make the contribution to public yeah. discourse that I think the public would benefit well, from. Well, I think that's what you want to do. I think you want to draw out of the person what they actually mean. Yes. And think. I do. As opposed to, you know, what they think they have to say. So why, given that you're a lawyer yes. and on really the fast track to partnership mm. and you were an associate to a family court judge. Yeah, my first year out I was. Which yeah. is a serious job to have, especially as a young person. And obviously you're in, you know, you like your academic side of what you do. Why did you decide to be a journalist? I didn't. Oh. It happened by accident. I still don't call myself a journalist, incidentally. What do you call I, yourself? I don't, I'm a presenter. Right. Uh, and in other media. But you write. Yes, so I'm mm. a commentator in that mm. sense. Uh, mm. To me, a journalist is someone who reports. Right. And I don't do reporting, and I've right. never done reporting. I mean, even that Northern Ireland story you could say is reporting, but it's not really. It's more feature type. It's analysis. It was a report, it's, but it was an analysis, and yeah. it, was a, it was a proper sort of decent long-form story. Yeah, it was, mm. and it was an explainer perhaps, but th- that's more the analytical stuff that comes out of my academic background really, and like that sort of brain. Mm. Um, but I don't consider myself a reporter, and so I don't consider myself a journalist. I think that's not fair to me or journalists. <laughs> um, but as for what happened, uh, I started off as a lawyer, and in my mind, that was all I was ever going to be. I just kind of, I, I don't really have the imagination to think what else I could be, just sort of that's what it is. That's my life now. Right. Um, and I sort of started writing pieces for newspapers because I loved newspapers and I would occasionally find something that piqued my interest and I would write it and I started getting published and I was amazed that this would happen. I got Uh, paid. Well, actually, most of the time I wasn't getting paid. It was only a bit later. I I get paid now. Yeah, well, 
Because you're writing a column. Didn't used to get paid. You get paid to slight your colleagues. I see. (laughs) I haven't slighted any of them. It's just looming there like a dark cloud in the background. When it happens, dear listener, know that Christopher Pine is getting paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) So? Um, So I was just writing bits and pieces and out of that, some people at Monash University had seen some stuff I was writing and they thought it was interesting. I'd done, I'd, I'd spoken at one or two conferences where I'd met people in academia. And so... And what were you speaking about? What was your... So a lot of this was, topic. this was all post 9-11 stuff. So uh-huh. a lot of it was terrorism related. Islam, um, terrorism, yeah, et cetera. Classic in, in Islam. That, in that sort of field, yeah. And so as a result of that, um, someone at Monash approached me and said, hey, um, would you be interested in, you know, moving into academia. So that looks like teaching. It looks like a PhD. It looks like no. all this sort of stuff. Uh, I was still a lawyer at the time. And I think the the bloom had gone off the rose with the law for me, no. which is a pretty common thing, I think, for <laughs> the young bloom lawyers. The gone off the rose. Yes. Nice. Um, did you like that? I did like that. I feel like that was worthy of you, that one. <laughs> I liked that um, a lot. And so I sort of, I made the jump and right. I moved into academia. And so the media stuff all kind of happened by accident as a result of stuff that I was producing. But then you, how did you go to the project? Well, the project followed... Because the project is kind of very different to writing columns for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah, the, well, the project followed from the ABC. Right. So I ended up... One, you like, do a bit on the ABC. Yeah, I do a mm. podcast. Well, it's actually a radio show that becomes oh. a podcast. Okay. So we're not competing I just, quite I, directly. I got quite a shock then. I sort of realised I was competing with you. Yeah. It's yeah. a very different podcast. It's a very not a really fair fight either. Why do you say that? Because you've got so many more followers than me. You're very popular. You're the gold logie winner. I don't know. If I've I, never won a logie. I've never been elected. Well, there you go. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it is a logie an election? I suppose it sort of is, isn't it? There's votes. Um, <laughs> increasingly, there's campaigning. I always wanted to win an Academy Award. You said you wanted to win a logie, though. And I'm happy to win a logie if you I can't win an Academy Award. any showbiz award is what you're after. would be great. Is that why you went into politics? You ultimately were interested in showbiz. Well, politics is show business for ugly people. Yes, I hear this. Um, Do you think it's true? Uh, who said that? The guy, Paul Begala said that, who was Bill Clinton's. So there's J, there was James Carson, I think, and uh, Paul Begala were his two Sven Garlies before he got, became president. Do you know what? Here's your opportunity. Great. To say something expansive publicly. <laughs> Thank I'm going to you. ask you a question. Here's your <laughs> opportunity. Ask me the questions. Yeah. No, this is just what's going to happen. Okay. Let's, let's just submit to it. Okay. That showbiz for ugly people, mm. it sort of suggests something about motivation, that a lot of people who are in politics are motivated at some high order by things other than altruism and community service and service of the country, that there is a self-serving I think egotistic element. How big is that amongst politicians, would you say? Well, I think... To be a successful politician, you have to have a healthy ego mm. because you've got to overcome a lot of criticism. Sure. So I think people who go into show business to be actors like Michael Caine or whatever um, bear some of the same traits as politicians because, you know, everyone's a critic of, you know, your performance in the movie or your performance in the parliament or your performance as a politician. So I don't think people without a healthy ego are going to be very successful in politics. Yeah, but I'm asking the question about motivation. Well, I think everyone's motivated by a range of things. I mean, I didn't go into politics because I thought it was going to be like show business. Um, I went into politics because I thought public service is a good thing in itself. Is this really true or is this your on-air conversation? This is definitely true. And uh, as a person who read about the classics all the time as a child, you know, about Rome and Greece and 
etc., it seemed to me that most of the people I was reading about were in public life. So that seemed to be the thing that I'd like to do. That's still a fame and fortune thing, isn't it? And also, You want to be the person that they read about. <laughs> well, doesn't everybody like to be noticed? No. Really? No. I, See, well, I no, do. no, no. Oh, hang on. That's too broad. A, yes. Everyone wants to be noticed. The question is by whom? By whom? And not everyone mm. wants to be noticed by a public. Well, I like the public noticing I, I'm me a little aware bit. <laughs> of this. This <laughs> is why I'm it. asking you the question. But So I was motivated by public service and I also thought, this is all this is all completely true. I thought, well, I've had a very lucky life mm. and I think I should do something to for the society in which I live because I can afford to. But you're making this about you. I'm asking about the profession. Oh, the profession? Well, I think there's probably a mixture across the profession, just there is like my own motivations. I think there's probably people who are doing it because they you know, pursued a local community issue and uh, uh, saving a park or something and then thought, ended up as the the person who led that group and then ended up as the mayor and then ended up in parliament. There's that kind of um, strain into politics. What percentage of showbiz hunters? <laughs> I don't think there could be too much. I don't know. I've got no idea. Oh, you've got no idea? I've got no idea. You spent, like, how long were you in parliament? 25 Most years? Most people in politics wouldn't even admit to such a thought. Of course they wouldn't, but you know them. I don't think there's that many showbiz hunters. Really? No, I think that everybody... No, I don't think so. Because there's a lot of politicians, by the way, that don't like that public side of politics, which I find surprising. Yeah. They just I mean, want to do the community work, the, the policy work. Yes, and yeah. I've had conversations with my former colleagues you know, and said to them, you have to do this, you have to do that, speak on this, and they say, oh, I don't really want to do that. Yeah. I said, what do you mean? And they go, well, I don't really like giving speeches. I say, what? See, <laughs> you, what do you mean? Exactly. I'm, I'm not surprised that you were <laughs> I surprised. That. You, you know what I always found uh admirable but also amusing about you was it seemed that when you were in the midst of the worst moments, when you were as a minister <laughs> really being kicked around the head about something, I think I remember a time, this is vague memory, so I might right. have this example wrong, but I reckon ed, you were education minister yes, and there were some things going on. Burning effigies and things. It was, yeah, and it just felt like every day after the next was just another kick in the head. And it was because I was trying to do that university reform. Yeah, and there was also, wasn't that thing about there was something about funding envelopes. Anyway. Oh, yes, there was the, um, the Gonski yeah, money. Yeah, all that stuff. And I just got the impression that the more dire it got, the more you were loving it, the more you were enjoying yourself in the midst um, of it. I wouldn't say I loved it or hated it. Well, one, I thought I don't really mind if people want to protest. They're perfectly entitled to do so. Yeah. Um, and two, I thought, well, this is just the way it's going to be, so I might as well just, you know, make the best of it have as much fun as I can with it. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's extraordinary. Because there was one moment I made some fabulous remark, I thought it was a fabulous <laughs> remark, to the press, which was sort of after Marie Antoinette and uh, why can't they eat cake? Yeah. Because they said to me, do you mind the fact that the, uh, they're burning your effigy on Spring Street? And I said, look, I wouldn't mind so much that they could actually get it alight. <laughs> I said, they must be art students because the science students would certainly know that the propellant that they're trying to use is not going to light that plastic. <laughs> that is a good line. And, of course, it's very disarming. But also very the, dismissive. <laughs> very dismissive. Totally dismissive. Yeah. And then at Adelaide Uni, they came and they, I was giving a speech there, a sort of set-piece speech, and they started standing up and singing the International. And I stopped and said... I think it's embarrassing that you need to have the words printed for you and handed out to sing the international. I said, when I was at university, proper communists knew it off by heart. <laughs> and 
they looked really silly at that point and most of them kind of sort of, you know, sheepishly left the hall. And See, this is what I mean. I think you enjoy that <laughs> more than it. you enjoy the successes. Uh, I like the bear pit. I do like the bear pit. Mm. Why? This is what I don't... See, I, I liked the chamber a lot. So you know what's interesting? One of my favourite things about politics was the chamber. The big difference between you and me is that I don't like the bear pit. Is that right? I'm not a bear pit person. I'm a bear pit person. I think people assume I'm a bear pit person. Right. But I'm not a bear pit person. No, you're a serious policy person. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Oh, you are. Thank you. You are. I mean, most of the conversations that we've had when we haven't been on the sitting on the panel mm. um, and we haven't been, you know, doing the discussion about the show before we do it, mm. we actually talk about usually serious things, serious mm. policy things. You ask me quite sort of difficult questions and you expect an answer. Can I ask you this? You don't just pass the time of day. You don't just shoot the breeze, you know, like what you do on the weekends sort of thing. Would it be better if more of that stuff happened on air? I don't mean you specifically, but I mean mm. as a public, as a Probably, nation. Yeah. If, we, if political interviews were more like that and politicians were more engaged in that sort of thing. I must admit it's been quite interesting since I left when I hear my former colleagues, Labor and Liberal, answering questions. Mm. <laughs> and I often think, often think now, oh, God, for God's sake, answer the question. Yes. So why don't you? I think we know, because I, I was there, I suppose, when you're inside that bubble, you know, group think really, become, the group behaviour becomes the norm. You don't really step outside it. But now that I'm not there, I listen to them talking. Some you realise how some ridiculous of them, Some of them talking, and I think... It's obvious that you're not answering the question. So I, why did you agree to do this interview if you weren't going to say anything of any usefulness? So I assumed that you know that when you're doing the interview, that you can see that you're not answering the question. I would, but I would try and not give the same answer over and over again. I remember an interview I did with you, though. Really? I don't even know if you remember this. That I, I did reckon, give the same answer over and over again. Yeah, and it was absurd. And I'm trying to remember what it was. <laughs> Thank I think, you. I think it was... Um, <laughs> It was maybe in the early days of the hung parliament. Right. Maybe. This was on radio. So it would have been early 2010. Something uh, like, 2010. Oh, late. Late 2010. Late 2010. Yeah. I think. I think. I might have this wrong, but, uh, and you were talking about, I think you were trying to argue that something was unconstitutional um, that you had kind of <laughs> signed up to. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason you'd signed up to it as well, it might have been about pairing or something stupid. Something and, unconstitutional. Yeah. And, and, but you, you were blaming Labor for that fact because you said, well, they, they want to do this thing and it's unconstitutional. And I think I said to you something like, yeah, but you agreed you would do it. And you said, yeah, but we were relying on yeah, but the no, government. But, yeah, but no. And but. I said, is this the way you make all your policy? You just <laughs> listen to the Labor Party and say, oh, sure, yeah, that but, sounds fine. Look, and you just refused. Time. To, to engage. Uh, to, to say anything sensible. See, why did I agree to that interview then? That's, I don't You tell me. <laughs> the 43rd Palmer was a very weird time. It's got, it stayed weird though. Uh, no, it got a lot better after the, um, after there was a, a clear government. I mean. But it was other, a strangely functional parliament in that things got passed. Yeah, well, one of the reasons for that was because Anthony Albanese and I, we would argue all day and he'd try, I'd try and ruin his life every day. Mm. And then he would try and ruin my life throughout because we both, he didn't have a majority either, neither did I. So we were both trying to ruin each other's lives. But I thought the parliament needed to work. So I would work, not with him in hand and glove, because he's obviously Labor and I'm Liberal and it wasn't my job to do that. It was my job to make his life difficult. But the parliament has to function. So despite the fact that we might be voting against the Malaysian solution or whatever, mm. and we'd use every, um, 
um, trick in the book to try and sort of frustrate the government. At the same time, the parliament did have to operate. I mean, there had to be an opening of parliament, legislation had to be debated, question time had to happen, all that kind of thing. And the quid pro quo was that he recognised that we were going to do a lot of suspensions of standing orders and, you know, running down from the hills, wielding our battle axes, etc. And that was all part of the kind of, you know, the parliament. But he and I became quite more very good friends, I have to say. So the parliament worked because of you? Now, the Parliament worked because despite the fact, you know, that it was a hideous period and there was the Slipper Affair and there was Craig Thompson and God knows what else. That's right. It's all coming back. The um, nostalgia. Oh, God, how awful. Anthony and I, as leader of the House of Managed Opposition Business, realised that we had to actually make sure the Parliament functioned or it would be bad for democracy. Yeah. But since, it's ceased functioning. Wow. It, nothing's happening. What are you talking about? What do you mean? What am I talking about? You mean everything's happening. The government's got a majority. Yeah. And what's it done with it? Sailing along. Yeah, exactly. People want uneventful government. Yeah, right. Okay. They're sick of excitement. Well, clearly that's why everyone's so pleased with politics at the moment. They they, they want it to be (laughs) calm. Yeah. Now, look, we have to talk about... um, Well, you haven't answered any. You haven't asked me any questions. I haven't asked you any questions. I'll tell you what. Pick... Pick your meatiest question okay. and we'll commit to it and we'll not be distracted. We'll be commit to that and then we'll talk about secret Hitler. <laughs> I feel like that's the only thing you really want to talk about. So this is a serious question and it's an important issue. Sure. When you went to university, you got active in the uh, various Islamic or, or Muslim societies that you could be involved in. You got involved in statewide representation, national representation. You are quite prominent about saying, and I'm a Muslim man, which is fine, it's your business, of course, but you're more than that. You're actually prepared to say the way we Muslims are being characterised and portrayed is wrong, mm. um, and I'm going to say something about that. Mm. And that has made you a target for a lot of people. Mm. So what have you done that? Why, why have you done that? And tell us you know, the, the, the gravamen of the point you're trying to make about Islam in Australia and the world? Um, well, I, why I did that is, un- unfortunately, it's a similar answer to the one you asked about moving into media, which is it was all a bit of an accident. Um, when you say I was getting active in Muslim community circles at university, well, yeah, I was the president of the Islamic Society there, but that's just like one of the clubs and societies and mm. they need someone to be president and I'd hung that's around. That's not the and... Chocolate Appreciation Society, is No, it? it's not, no. but, you know, it's not actually that far removed. <laughs> it's, it's halal barbecues instead of chocolate, but yeah. it's basically a similar sort a social of... social group. Yeah, more or less. You know, there's a community there and there's a facility to look after because there's a prayer room on campus and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of it. It's not like a political role or anything like that. And then the statewide representation that you're talking about is the Islamic Council of Victoria, mm. which again was such an accident that I wasn't even aware I was on it until I was. So someone oh. actually approached me who was on the board at the time, a man by the name of Yasser Solomon. I don't know if you remember him, but he was the president. He was quite prominent for a little period around September 11 and a lovely man. And he came up to me and he said, uh, we want to get some young people on the board. Would you be interested? And I said, um, I don't know. Let me have a think about it. Then he put you on anyway. And then at the next meeting, I was put on the board. <laughs> That's how people become president of the branches in the Liberal Party. Is that if right? If you don't turn up, you're almost certainly going to end up being an office bearer. Well, I haven't turned up. <laughs> What's happened? No, if you don't turn up, you end up being an office bearer. That's what I'm saying. I haven't. I haven't turned up. Why am I not an office bearer? 
I think it'd be a member of the Liberal Party first. Well, oh, right. That's yeah. the step. That's that, the step. Yeah, right. So that just all kind of happened by accident. What the, the, the convergence of circumstances w- was that there was that, that I was accidentally or you know, I happened to be placed in this position at the time that a whole lot of stuff was started happening. happening. So the Bali bombings was before that, but it was things like uh, the London bombings, uh, Madrid to some extent, mm-hmm. counterterrorism legislation. There was the religious vilification stuff that was happening in Victoria, and obviously this was a Victorian organisation, and that was an organisation that had actually run that litigation that you might remember under the Racial and Religious Tolerance yeah, right. Act. There were court there was findings. the Racial Vilification Act in 1993. Yeah, but this was... 1992, Different Big legislation because it extended the racial stuff to religious that was in Victoria. In Victoria. Yep. Yeah, in two thousand and one, I think the act was passed, and then there was that test case which involved the two two Dannys, the pastors from That's right. Catch the Fire Ministries. Exactly. So the Islamic Council of Victoria ran that case on behalf of a couple of Muslims in the community. Right. That was all before I got there. Then I became associated with this case, even though I personally wouldn't have run it. <laughs> right. But I became associated with it because they said, hey, you're, you you can talk law and stuff. Go out and be our so spokesman. Suddenly, I'm just there out the front of VCAT right. with cameras in my face Go having on. to deal with this sort of stuff, sort of on a lunch break from the law firm. That, <laughs> it was that kind of situation, right? Was I mean, that Maddox? It was Maddox, yep. yes. Um, so all this sort of stuff just happened. And when you're put in that situation, well, I guess you don't really have the choice to be anonymous about it. You're there representing a community in one way or another, as, as impossible as that is to do with a community like the Muslim community that's impossibly diverse. Mm. But you're in that position. So what are you going to do? So say, oh, I'm not, I'm not really... I think you did the right thing. But then since then, you haven't just sort of thought, well, that's done now. You've been writing columns when somebody writes something or says something in the media that you disagree with about Muslims, you're quite prepared to come out and say so. And I think that's perfectly within your right to do so. I think it'd be interesting if you could just explain the difference between the way Islam used to be when it was flourishing scientific, mathematical, engineering works, construction, the period uh, that has preceded the current period and because I don't, it's with a big debate. I don't think that China is is understood in Australia, mm. and I, which is another subject. And I mm. don't think that uh, Islam is understood in Australia. I don't think people know that for hundreds of years, the Muslim world, the Middle Eastern world, was the the centerpiece of all of the great inventions and. Um, movements forward and that Europe was very medieval and very backward. Well, indeed, um, the Renaissance owes quite a lot <laughs> to Islamic history. But that's this... not the case now in terms of the, the way that Islam is operating in some countries these days. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I've been very open about this. I think uh, that Islam is in the midst of a serious intellectual and spiritual crisis. And it has been really for probably a few hundred years at the very least. Right. Um, a lot of that has to do with colonisation, but not all of it is about that. There were, there were, the decay had begun to set in prior to colonisation. You can see that into the late Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I wrote a book about, broadly about this sort of stuff. And what I was effectively arguing was that the people who say that uh, the problem with Islam is that it needs to modernise don't understand that actually the problem with Islam is that it has modernised right. <laughs> and this is what it looks like when it modernises, right? Mm. Because if you look at Islamic thought, 
in sort of that post-colonial era into the 20th century and so on, and particularly the more radical expressions of it. These are not things that are being led by classically trained theologians. These are things that are being led by people who are activists, engineers, doctors, whatever, mm. often trained in the physical sciences who don't really understand the... I mean, Islam is, for one of a, a, a more fitting and appropriate category, it belongs, broadly speaking, in what we call the humanities, not in the sciences. Right. right? And, but yet it's that kind of training that has more or less led the activism that has taken the form of Islamic thought in recent times. Wahhabism. Well, Wahhabism is an example, although it's slightly different because the scholar that begins that himself is not an engineer or something. But certainly the people who have taken that and and really adopted that and expressed that in the modern world and particularly in the form of political activism, they have been of those sorts of backgrounds. So do you see a time when there will be a reversion to the classical liberal uh, Islam that you're talking about? uh, I think it's getting harder and harder to do, actually. Mm. This is... is Part of the problem, which I is think. depressing. I find it depressing. Um, mm. Yeah, but because anybody who's been to Istanbul can see that this is this is not a capital of a backward no, people. No, no, well, it's the, not the capital. No, no, no. Of course, Ankara is, but it was for the capital for about fifteen hundred years. No, just to, to give an example, this is one of many, and it's just an easy one to give that will mean something to a Western audience. But like the classical Islamic period and the debates that took place there, they're, they're the reason that the Western world has Aristotle. Right, mm. you know, there's that famous um, argument that took place between Al Ghazali and Ibn Rushd, and Al Ghazali writes this book. He studies philosophy and he masters philosophy, and he despises philosophy, and he writes this book called The Incoherence of the Philosophers. And then Ibn Rushd, who's a master of Aristotle, writes his reply called The Incoherence of the Incoherence. Right, <laughs> and. And Ibn Rushd uh, appears in this, this, that famous painting of the fathers of the Renaissance. He's in there. Right. He's one of those people because it's via his mastery of Aristotle that that re-enters into the Western canon, right? Wow. It's, it's this sort of mm. interaction and this sort of intellectual contribution, but also the, note the intellectual dynamism of that era, of that period. That's, I think, where where the hope lies. That's right. where something that's honestly gentle Things are always changing. They so, are. It's about how we respond to them. And how we change them for the better. And you can respond with roots or you can respond without them. And I think when you respond without them, I think you come up with some potentially catastrophic responses. Excellent. Now, you've been very generous with your time because I know how famous and busy you are. Yeah, righto. So, <laughs> board games. Yes. When did you get into board games? I love board games. So do I. Do you think that board games are the most overlooked aspect of our society, that as, as everything's become phones... I like almost all board, ga- board games. Yes. Like, I like backgammon, I like chess, but yeah. I actually like complicated board games like, um, you know, War and Peace and... Risk? Have you played Risk? Risk. Do you like yeah. Risk? Yeah, I do like Risk. Yeah, I quite yeah. like Risk as well. We bought that... Not that complicated, though. No, it's probably not. Yeah. So when I was a child, mm. um, I used to have these board games, War and Peace, Samurai, Russian Campaign, War of the Roses... The guns of August, and we were a group of what my children would describe as nerds. We used to play from like Friday night to sort of Sunday night. This is so great! Totally for the whole weekend. That's so good. Like we wouldn't really sleep. We might get two hours sleep, 
because we'd be playing this game, which would go, I and mean, we wouldn't play two or three games. You'd just play one. The one game. The one game. It's a test match. <laughs> it's a test match. And yes. you'd, I mean, and some people would be crying because they'd be so exhausted. <laughs> and it was really fun. I like how you've turned it into an endurance sport. It was. It was like an endurance sport. And, of course, I was very competitive. I don't. I don't believe you. <laughs> Very competitive. And I would do terribly unconventional things. Like in in the War of the Roses, the idea was to gather as many members of the royal family as possible. Yep. Have you played War of the Roses? No, I haven't. This sounds fantastic. So I would, and so the idea was you'd get Margaret of Anjou and King Edward the, the Fourth, and uh, you'd sort of hang on to them as hostages. Yep. And the person at the end of the game with like the most won. So I would get them So it's all. a kidnapping royals game. Basically. And I would get them all. As You're many a Republican, aren't you? I am a Republican. <laughs> but I would get as many of them as I could and then I'd put them to death. Except for one. <laughs> and so I'd have the one because I only needed to have one. Because the rest were dead. And if I put them to death, but the other competitors couldn't, couldn't get, get hold them. of them. And people would they would get people would be gnashing their teeth and pulling out their hair and ripping their clothes so, and saying, so, You can't do that. I said, Where does it say in the rules I can't do that? So would it be fair to say that you used this kind of strategy in your dealings in leadership spills in the party room? <laughs> I've actually been quite good at leadership spills. I don't deny it. And is this where that began? I, I think board games teach you a lot. They do. They do. They do. And have you ever played um War and Peace, which is the Napoleonic one? No. I like that all yours are anchored in history. Yeah, actually, it's a good way of learning about history. So yeah. my friends who were part of this nerd group were about yeah. eight of us, and there were like six countries in war and peace, mm. and they'd get sick of me being so aggressive. So they would give me, they'd make me be Spain. <laughs> I'd say, but everybody knows Spain can't win. <laughs> they said, yeah, no, we're sick of it. You have to be Spain. Yeah. And Spain's like got nothing to Did do in war and peace. Did you ever pull off victory No, I Spain. didn't. But I did something really great that me, <laughs> even my friends couldn't believe my audacity. Yeah. I used the ships from Spain yes. to land in Italy. The Spanish Armada lands. So I could be. Because <laughs> the problem with being Spanish is behind the Pyrenees. Yeah. And you can't do anything. Yeah. And the French don't let you come out. Yeah. So I just quietly, while everyone's busily fighting, you know, Austerlitz and Wagram and all these other battles over in the middle of Europe, and I'm sort of stuck in the bloody part of the Pyrenees, I quietly used these ships, there are only three ships, to go from Spain to Italy so I could come up like Churchill did, wanted to do in the war, yeah. through the centre and become part of the battle. This is brilliant. Which I did. And then what happened? Well, I didn't, Spain's too small, so I was crushed. <laughs> I was destroyed. So, so at that point you learnt why no one else had ever done that before. Exactly, but it was more fun. Yeah, I get it. I get Much it. Much more fun to be in it. Then suddenly they were all saying, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be in this and part so, of Europe. So I asked the question again, was that your approach to leadership spills? It was much more I fun to be in it. Oh, you've got to be in it. Definitely. <laughs> I didn't sort of sit in my room and lock the door during leadership spills. So what's your yes. favourite um, board game? Uh, well, see, I go through phases. Right, so did I. I sort of rediscovered Monopoly a couple of years ago. Oh, it's see, a really I, I, good game. It's a great game, but I'm a bit of a socialist about Monopoly. In what way? You think it's unfair that you can... I think it's unfair. Well, you know it's designed as a critique of capitalism. So what we do in our games and our family is that once all the um, <laughs> properties have been purchased, yeah. we divide them all up so that everybody gets a colour. 
I mean, <laughs> scandalous. It's scandalous. So, and that, you who ran against Labor's redistribution agenda at the last election. <laughs> I can't have, have my The most children. emphatic redistribution agenda of all time. Yeah, but in not your everyone gets exactly the same. But if you've Doesn't got. It doesn't matter. You're just confiscating people's properties and giving them to other people. We do. But if you have two browns and, like, you know, a red and someone's got two reds, well, we make you trade. We say you have to give that red. You have to give Trafalgar to your brother. Could you imagine if Labor proposed that? And uh, if you're saying, in, if you're and in, some Mossman, other player has to give Bow Street to the person with the other two. You've got three houses, houses in in <laughs> Mossman, Bondi, and Potts Point. You only have the, to give them to someone in Cranbourne. It's only the titles. After that, the hotels and houses you have on your own because it's just. I mean, I've seen the devastation on the pages of these children when they get smashed in monopolies. Yeah, but that's there. but that's the point. <laughs> No, I, that's a little this, bit of that's is, a little insight, and I have a small social streak when it comes to or monopoly. Or is this your way of rehabilitating the reputation of capitalism? <laughs> because <laughs> I it, had a friend who threw the board in the air when I proposed that. I'm sure they did, and he was playing with my children and me, and they were like sort of age sort of eight to sort of what it must have been about fourteen. And I won't say his name because it was so embarrassing. And I said, now that all the, so, the titles have been sold, we have to work out the division of them so that everyone gets a colour. <laughs> Is it what? I said, no, that's what we do in this was that, Hang on, was that friend John Howard? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> was and, it John Hewson? And he's like, he would have been about 40. And, he, and I insisted. So he said, well, there's no way. I'm doing that. And he threw the board in the yeah, air. Yeah, well, I think he's right. We were in shock. We've but never played with, with him since. With your version of the game, it would never end. I play board games with him all the time. But, but yeah, not Monopoly. But not Monopoly. No, he's not allowed to play Monopoly because he might throw the board in the well, air again. You, you play the other game where you have to be Spain. That's what We you play Risk and, and Diplomacy and things like that. But you're Secret Hitler. You're, so secret, you're in love with so Secret I've really Hitler. So I've just discovered this game and it sounds hideous. It does sound like it a does. bad title, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And mm. I'm not responsible for the title and... You know, if I designed the game, I probably... No, we have to say that because we don't want people to think we're playing a game that we pretend to be Hitler. No, it's not... That's not the... the, In fact, I think there's a version of it called Secret Trump. (laughs) Really? (laughs) So let's call it Secret Trump. We'll call it Secret Trump because it sounds better. Yeah, but it's... uh, You've you've never played this game? No, but my friend, the Monopoly-throwing board man, um, he's a devotee and he's desperate to get me to play it, but I just haven't had a chance lately. Oh, right. Well, it's, it's quite an extraordinary game. So it's a secret role game. People are liberals and Nazis. Is that liberals right? Liberals or fascists? Liberals or fascists. And one of the fascists is, let's say, Trump. Trump, yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, the liberals don't know who anyone is. The fascists know who everybody is. Right. And Trump doesn't know who anybody is. So Trump doesn't know their allies right. in this. And as you play the game... You are slowly, if you're a liberal particularly, trying to figure out who is whom by the way in which they play the game and, and the cards that they play. Oh, interesting. So you get fascist or liberal cards and, oh. and so on. But it's effectively a lying game. Oh. So if you're a fascist, you spend the whole game basically trying to frame other people as, the, as, as fascists. As secret Trump. Yes, as or, as, or just as fascists. Right. Yeah. And if you're a liberal, you're trying to figure out who's who and you are often framed yourself in situations because you, you can you get taken out of the game. You can be executed. Is that right? Yeah, you wouldn't want to a, play with me. Then. As more well, maybe depends who you are. <laughs> Poor old. Do you know what? I really War of the Roses. I really do want to play with you because I think you would be so good at telling just bald faced lies. Thank you, Walid. I'm right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd take that as a compliment. I'm absolutely right. I'm taking that as a compliment. You would be you would be like the arch fascist. I know in the you game, mean that in the nicest possible way. I do mean it in the nicest possible way. You would be the arch fascist in the game and you would sit there insisting that you're a liberal against all available evidence and you would probably pull it off. I hope so. Yeah. Well, on that note. Are you going to play it? I will, definitely. Right. We'll see how you go. Well, we'll play it. I think I'll play it with my friend and I'll play in Adelaide and then I'll play it with your group in Melbourne. Okay. <laughs> where I'm over for the project. It's not an established group. It's kind of, oh, we, it? we'll cobble it together. Well, thank you for joining well, me. Thanks for having me. It's been good fun. Did I do as well as Pete? <laughs> we have to be nice about Pete because we, otherwise we'll get, you know, Blackboard. Well, neither of us will be on the show. For the show for the panel. So he was Pete was easily the best so far. Right. Let's see what you're doing. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Do you know doing. what? I'm cancelling you and Pete now. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer, and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.